Greetings. Welcome to White Run Baptist Church Online, and welcome to the Upward Call. We're on the Upward Call number eight, where we're going to talk about Paul's fellow workers in Christ. Well, I hope you're uh, ready to explore the scriptures some more in the book of Philippians. The Upward Call is an exposition of the book of Philippians, in which we're examining this upward call of Christ, to which Paul refers to near the middle of this letter. And this upward call of Christ is to be more like Christ. This is the, the purpose, the destiny of believers in Jesus Christ. And so the sermon series is designed to facilitate this, this journey along, the cooperation with God in this upward call to be more like Jesus Christ. So we have great opportunity ahead of us as we explore this. What we're going to see today is we're going to see Paul speak about his fellow workers in Christ. He's going to bring up two examples of those workers. And what we're going to see are these two people who have lived out the principles he's just discussed in the beginning of chapter 2. In the beginning of chapter 2, he urges people to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. And he says in verse 4 back there, he says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And that's when he turns to the example of Jesus Christ. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to describe the humbling of Jesus Christ, him coming to take on flesh, to live obediently among us, obedient to the point of death on a cross. And so having held up Jesus Christ as the ultimate example of self-denial, of humiliation, of putting the concerns of others before our own, now he's going to give us practical worldly examples, because maybe we can't relate to Christ. Maybe that is a goal too lofty, too high for us to see at this point. So how about, Paul, you bring us some earthly uh, examples of this. And that's exactly what he's going to do. He's going to bring us two very different examples. And from them both, we're going to learn a great deal about how it is that we work out our salvation. That is how it is we get this mind of Christ, this humble mind of service. And so that's what we're going to do as we look at the scriptures here. Here's what we want to see. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me." And I trust in the Lord that, I, that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker, and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Well, let's begin with a word of prayer. 
Father, we have read these words today, and Lord, it is our intent to understand them, to understand them from your perspective. What do you mean for us to gain from these things? How should we understand the scriptures? You've promised that your Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth. So we ask you today for the Holy Spirit to understand these words and to rightly apply them to our lives so that we may live this life according to the mindset of Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we have uh, two great examples, Timothy and Epaphroditus, and however you want to pronounce his name is fine with me. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. Um, I could take great pains to try to pronounce everything right, but I don't want any barriers between you and the scriptures. So I'm just going to pronounce it how I see best, and I encourage you to do the same. So last time we looked at this idea of working out your salvation, and essentially what that means is to how do we develop this mind of Christ? How do we bring what he has done inside us in changing our hearts when he saved us, when he took us from death into life? How do we then begin to work that out from ourselves to express it to the world? And this is indeed uh, two examples of how that is done. So the big idea here that I want us to see today is simply this. I want us to understand that believers develop the mind of Christ by working out their salvation, by serving the people of God in the interest of Christ. So that's what we're going to look at today is these, these two men were serving the people of God in the interests of Jesus Christ. So let's look at this idea just a piece at a time here uh, as we look at the key verses. First of all, they served and they put the concerns of others ahead of their own. Now that may be obvious. It's hardly, you know, worthy to say, well, you need a point to say that they served. Isn't that what the entire sermon's about? Well, it is worthy of a point because sometimes I think we take the idea of service for granted. We take the, the obvious point sometimes we overlook as we look for the details. Timothy and Epaphroditus are mentioned here for only one reason, and it's this fact that they served. Now, Paul is very interested in how they served, but and, and we'll talk about how they served, but we don't want to overlook the fact that they did. Now, if we look at verse 22, we see that uh, Timothy served in a particular kind of way. It says, Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel as a son with a father and this comes to us this letter comes to the church in days in which it was most common for young people to work under their father in his trade or vocation and take that on as they grew older that was the easiest way to train for how to make a living you train with who's there and that would be your father or perhaps an uncle or something like that if your father wasn't available or his work wasn't something you could you could step in to. And so he says, this is like he was an apprentice to me. He came alongside me. He walked where I walked, did what I did, learned what I did. And by example and by training and by teaching, then he is becoming what I am is essentially what he's saying by he's worked like a son next to his father. 
And this is Timothy we're talking about. Paul met him in Lystra on his second missionary journey. You can read about the beginning of Acts 16. He invites him along to go with him and the others that were traveling, spreading the gospel on his missionary journey. And from that point, Timothy accompanies him on his journeys, many of his journeys. And he's mentioned five more times in the book of Acts after Acts 16. And he's mentioned 18 times in Paul's letters, and he's mentioned once in the book of Hebrews. So sometimes he's with Paul, sometimes he's sent by Paul, sometimes he's written to by Paul in his two letters, First and Second Timothy. And eventually it's very clear from those letters that Timothy becomes a pastor, and he serves then his whole life, devoting his life to gospel service. And Paul points out that Timothy is unique because Timothy indeed uh, has the interests of Jesus Christ before even his very own. Take a look at the, the scripture there again. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. And so there's no one quite like him who's going to be as genuinely concerned. He's going to seek the interests not of his own, but of Jesus Christ. So this is how he talks about Timothy. In contrast, when he talks about Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus is mentioned only in this letter. He's not mentioned in the book of Acts or in any of the other letters. And here he's given an equal number of verses to Timothy, and he's actually given more words than Timothy. And so he's held up next to Timothy here as an example, a humbler example, if you will, of showing a broad range of service. Here's Epaphroditus, who's mentioned one time for doing one particular thing with Paul. And here's Timothy, who's mentioned as having really what became a lifestyle alongside Paul doing what he did. And look at the diversity of Epaphroditus's service here in verse 25. He's described as my brother, which indeed, if he's in Christ, he is a brother, and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. There's a whole bunch of different words there. He's a fellow worker, which is one who would labor alongside you, a fellow soldier who's one to stand beside you and fight beside you when necessary. He's also this messenger. He's not only, he, he's bringing information from one person to another and a messenger had to be someone trusted. It had to be someone reliable who could get the job done and who would not alter the message, who would bring the message of someone else to bear. And then he becomes a minister to my need. And so here it became personal to Paul that he serves Paul's needs directly. He sounds like someone who did what was needed to be done. And Paul obviously has great affection for him and appreciation for his service. And when he was ill in verse 26, he was distressed. And look at this uh, Epaphroditus' attitude here in verse 26. He says, um, he's been longing for you and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. He wasn't distressed because he was ill. That's distressing enough for most of us. He was distressed when they got word that he was ill because he knew they would worry about him, that he knew they would be concerned, but he didn't want those people to be concerned. He didn't want his home church to be worried about him. And indeed he did recover to everyone's joy. 
So this shows this great selflessness, a selflessness like was modeled in Jesus Christ, that the concerns of others, his concern for his home church and their well-being and their, their state of mind was even above his own concern of being ill. Both of these men demonstrated the mind of Christ, putting the concerns of Christ and of his church ahead of their own. And this is an important point that I want to uh, I want you to see here is that God calls no one to salvation without calling them into service. God calls no one to salvation without calling them into service. And one of the most famous passages about this salvation that he has called us into in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 2.10, it says this when it gives, it actually gives the purpose of our salvation. It says in 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, when it says created in Christ Jesus, yes, we know that we were initially, everything was created through Christ. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we are born again. The Bible describes us as new creations. So we are recreated in Christ Jesus for a purpose, for good works. No one is called to salvation without being called to service. This is a very important thing. Now, it's also very important we understand who it is that they serve. They served the people of God. Timothy and Epaphroditus both served the people of God. And this indeed is what we are called to as believers, to serve the people of God. And this needs first to be personal. This needs first to be personal. And and I want to take a moment here and consider the times that we live in. Because the times that we live in, in many ways, people are fundamentally the same. The gospel is absolutely the same as when Paul wrote this letter. But what has changed is the context in which we live. The world is different than it was then, though people are not. And when we consider our times, we are in the age of what some people call the information age. Lately, people have been calling it the misinformation age. Uh, Either way, we are in what is probably best described as a mass communication age because it is really communication starting with the invention of the printing press and moving forward that brought the Industrial Revolution, all the technological advantages we know, everything else. These were all a result of superior communication that we were able to learn better and faster and more broadly around the world. And so this mass communication is kind of what defines our times. And this makes a difficulty for us in understanding today's lesson because we see the world through little screens. We see the entire world through little screens that we hold in our hand or we have in our desk or we have in in our houses. And we have revealed to us the complete magnitude of every problem. We see the news of every great and terrible or great and tremendous and good thing that has happened. And so we kind of take on this world-encompassing mindset when it comes to the news that highlights 
only that which is sensational. Now the news agencies, they have to highlight that which is most interesting, most sensational, most likely to keep you glued to that screen because after all, that is how they make their money. They sell their advertising. But the result is in this, that we become captivated by systemic or national or international problems. We think of every problem on a grand scale because it's put before our eyes every day. It's right there at our fingertips, the news of the world. Well, consequently, what happens is we tie up a lot of mental and spiritual and even physical resources trying to solve the world's problems. And we burn up so much time and energy doing that that we lose sight of the ministry field where we have the most impact locally, right at arm's length in our families, in our friends, in our neighborhoods, in our communities. Now apply this to Timothy and Epaphroditus. Would they find themselves in today's context, in this mass communication age, maybe Epaphroditus would have thought, you know, Paul's in prison for preaching the gospel and he quite obviously needs help. Hmm. If only there was some kind of a ministry to help people like Paul in his predicament, because I just bet that there's people all around the world in Paul's kind of situation, and we should really start a nonprofit and raise some money and hire some people and appoint committees and have meetings to help people out like this and eliminate problems like Paul's throughout the whole world. We can eliminate prison difficulties. Or maybe he'll think, you know, I did some research and I found that one in three prisoners like Paul suffer similar difficulties. What I'll do is I'll petition my senators, the Roman Senate, and I'll, I'll create a groundswell of public support through social media and we'll shame politicians that don't support our cause and we'll boycott any businesses that don't get on board with us. We'll stage protests in Rome to get attention. We'll make up clever chants. We'll vandalize local businesses if we have to. We'll jam so many people into downtown Rome that we'll stop all the chariots from moving and they'll have no choice but to hear our voices. Now, Epaphroditus was in Philippi, and it was from Philippi that he served. They learned of Paul's situation. They knew of his needs. They sent him. He went to Paul and helped Paul. Now, if he had it in his mind to start this, this worldwide you know, flood of support for people like Paul in Paul's situation, that's fine. But I think that serving Paul in the immediate context where he is able to make a difference immediately was the most important thing to do. Now, what about Timothy? What if Timothy thought, you know, if only there were more like-minded people to Paul, we could start a seminary. I'll write down all that I know from the time I spent with Paul. I'll design a curriculum. We'll find out Paul's background. We'll get educated the way he was educated, both in Greek and Hebrew, just like him. We'll get clothes like Paul. We'll all get haircuts just like Paul. And it'll be the Paul School of Gospel Ministry. No, Timothy... Though Paul called him alongside him to learn to help in his work of the ministry, Timothy served right there with Paul. He didn't launch into grandiose ideas of, of what it would be to have a Paul school or anything like that. 
He looked at the situation. He saw where he was. He served where he was. Paul took him all around and he served wherever he found himself to be following Paul. And I think, and this is because I see it in myself, I think we have a tendency to think too big on things, to overlook the need right at hand. And is it maybe that we get distracted by the big picture? Or maybe that we think the work right at hand is beneath us? Or maybe too uncomfortable for us? Surely less comfortable than fantasizing about grandiose plans to change the world. And grandiose plans to change the world can easily be abandoned because they're out of reach. I propose this. I propose that we guard ourselves from pursuing thoughts like these and we take hold of the opportunities that are immediately within reach like Timothy and Epaphroditus did. Then maybe greater ones will come along. Look what uh, Jesus said in Matthew 25, 23. He says something very important here for us. Um, he says, his master said to him, and he tells a parable here, and he, he's wrapping up the parable this way. The master says to the servant who served him faithfully while he was gone, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And then he sums it up also in Luke 16.10. He says it a different way, not in a parable. He says, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And also one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. I also think, because I see it in myself, that we have a distaste for the work that is right at hand. Oftentimes we look around and we think, I, I'm not really crazy about these people. They're really not my kind of people. It's really not my kind of work. It's not my area of giftedness. It's really not my thing. And this distaste for the work causes us to try to negotiate the work. We look at something that needs to be done and it's not something we're comfortable doing or it's with somebody we don't want to do this with. And we think, you know what? I'll, I'll fund this adventure. I'll, I'll put up the money for this kind of thing or, or I'll do this part, but we need to find someone else to do that other part. I'm just being real about how you and I sometimes are tempted to think. The solution to these problems is to understand a couple things. And I've put a few of these things on the, on the notes here for you. Uh, what we want to see is to really understand these things, we want to talk about sovereignty, love, judgment, and commission. See, we are called to serve the people of God. It is the people of God that we serve. And when we think about our service, that we must render to the people of God. We first of all need to understand the sovereignty of God. He has placed us where we can serve him right now. Do, do you hear what I'm saying? That God has placed you right where he wants you to serve him right now. Now, might he take you off somewhere else? Yes. But for now, their service to be done here. Remember, before he takes you off on some grand worldwide tour of ministry, uh, you're probably going to have to show yourself faithful in the local things. When Jesus says he is faithful in little will be faithful in much, well, let me put it this way. He who is faithful in local 
might be found faithful in global. So let's be faithful in local first. But look what this says in Ephesians 2.10 here. It says this. It says, um, and I know I've clicked on this. Oh, there's our problem. One second. I'll get this synced up right to the right place. Okay. Ephesians 2.10 says this. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, God already had things in mind for you to do before he saved you. And it's given here that that is the reason he saved you. It says for good works, for the purpose of doing good works. You are not where you are by chance, but by the sovereign hand of God. And he has placed you into a body of believers. And this is very clear by the New Testament analogies of both the body of Christ and the building, the temple of the Holy Spirit, where he describes believers as being a body fit together, one part to another, to work together, different parts. And then he also talks about in the New Testament, the idea of a building being put together and the pieces being put one by one together, fitted together in a particular way. And you, where you are, is part of that particular way. He has assigned you a group of believers to serve. And you need only look around. Do you remember when Jesus said about building his church? Who's going to build his church? He said, I will build my church in Matthew chapter 16. So when he calls us into service in the body of Christ, it is first, of course, to love. And so we have to not only look at God's sovereignty, that we are where we are for a reason, we're to serve those around us, but also this command to love. And when we think about the commands to love, Jesus gave three. He gave that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, quoting the Old Testament. And also quoting the Old Testament, he says, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Then he gives a new command, which is not really a new one, but it's one that marks us for who we are from John 13. He tells us to love one another. Now, when the Bible speaks of love, it talks about the love of serving. It's always in the context. It's not a feeling that we have. It's an action that we do. That's why it says in John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So his love accomplishes things. His love works. His love does things. And that is what he intends for us. He intends for us to love. Now, also, I want you to look at the word uh, judgment here. The Our service to the people of God will be an identifying mark in the final judgment. It'll be an identifying mark in the final judgment. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46, nearing the end of what of Jesus uh, teaching them on the last days, in this last week of ministry, he talks about the final judgment. He says, all the nations going to be gathered before the Lord, and then he's going to judge them this way. You know, those who serve the people of God are going to enter into the kingdom. Those who did not serve the people of God by meeting their needs is primarily how he puts it, uh, visiting them in prison, giving them food, giving them, them uh, shelter, those kind of things. Those who didn't serve will find themselves in hell. And this is how he describes the final judgment. Now we know that salvation is not by works. So what he's doing is he's describing these groups by their works. We know that the difference is, difference is faith. 
that those who believe will indeed obey Christ. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And his commands were to love one another. And so those serving the people of God are the ones indeed who will be brought into the kingdom. Those are the kingdom people. They serve the people of God. And now finally, commission. The fourth thing I want to look at here, they, we serve the people of God through the Great Commission. Now there's a mistake we make when we think about the Great Commission because you've noticed everything I've said so far, I've been careful to say that we serve the people of God. And many Christians will say, hold on, no, 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 no. We're supposed to love everybody. We're supposed to love our neighbor. Yes, indeed, that is true. Even if our neighbor is an unbeliever, we're supposed to love our neighbor. They're absolutely right about that. But we primarily and first and foremost serve the people of God. Now, loving our neighbor who is not a believer is part of that service. And so is the Great Commission, part of that service of the people of God. How is that? Well, because among those who are our neighbors, who are not believers, they are not our brothers and sisters in Christ, some of them will be. And so when we take them the gospel, when we serve them and show them the love of Christ, we are serving the people of God in advance. In fact, we're serving them in the best possible way. That's to bring them into salvation, to bring them into the people of God, to be used of God, to move them from death to life. And of course, that power is not our own. We bring the message in which the Holy Spirit brings that power into them. So we are indeed serving the people of God when we serve people who are not the people of God. As long as we're doing it in the name of Christ and in the interest of Christ. And that brings us to our next point is that they serve the interest of Christ. And so the, the next point here is they not only serve the people of God, they serve the people of God in the interests of Christ. They don't have their own opinions about how to do that. And this is a key part of working out our salvation, serving others. A key part of this is our personal spiritual growth. And here's how this fits in and how I want you to see this. Uh, Jesus defined eternal life in this way. And let me, let me put this up here for a moment. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So he defines eternal life as a relationship, as knowing him, knowing the Father. The word used here is a relational word. And so he, he gives us this word, he uses this word, and he says, this is eternal life. Well, he gives us eternal life, and this is our primary work. Now, I know I've just spent the entire sermon saying you have to serve others, but I'm telling you, your primary task in serving others is, in fact, to grow spiritually. To grow spiritually, to grow in your relationship. Because why? Because we have to serve in the interests of Christ. And we can't know the interests of Christ without knowing Christ himself. That is why we cannot have unbelievers come into the church and do the work of the ministry because they're not qualified. They don't know Jesus Christ, therefore they cannot cooperate with him in his purposes and his way of doing things. That's why the New Testament takes great pains to clearly outline the qualifications for leadership in the church. 
It's because these have to be people that are acquainted with Christ who can truly serve his interests. And remember what Paul said of Timothy? He's the only one who truly serves the interests of Christ and not his own. And so this is uh, the important part, the danger in spending so much language uh, on the fact that we need to serve is that we might overlook our primary privilege and duty that is knowing the Father and knowing the Son. If we neglect knowing the Father and knowing the Son and try to jump into serving, we will serve wrongly or we will burn ourselves out because we're doing it on our own strength. For Christ to work most effectively through us, we must be conformed to his image more and more. The word is his instruction and his practice. And the service that we do is the playing field. And so if you want to make an analogy to a sports team or to athleticism and preparation, you know, all our preparation is in the word of God, in prayer, that is exercising with him, that's getting our game plan together, that's making our strategies and everything else. We do this in fellowship with the people of God. We study the word with them. We discuss these things. We we work them out. We sharpen each other. We challenge each other and debate things and come to conclusions from the word of God. And then we get on the playing field, and that's when we're serving one another. And like any good sport, we're continually going back and forth, continually playing and practicing, playing and practicing, playing and practicing. When I helped coach basketball, it was very often that we would, there were a few times that we actually practiced the entire offseason. We just kept right on practicing. Uh, and we weren't restricted by, we were private school, we weren't restricted by any particular rules that say, you can't practice but, you know, so many months. And so we just went on practicing throughout the year. But nevertheless, there were some things that we could not work on until we were in competition on the playing court against the opposition. And so some things never fell into place until we started playing games. And we see this now, this sermon comes to you in March and it's time for March Madness. And it's the one time a year I really watch basketball. And these teams, they've, they've worked on their game all season long. And you'll hear story after story. Well, this, this team got off to a great start, but they just kind of fizzled out. Or this team started off really rough, but now they're really hitting their stride. And that's actually every team's goal is let's get our best game moving before the tournament at the end of the season. And that is indeed their goal because they want to do well in the tournament. Now, there's an example of this right here in our text, and it requires a little bit of digging. Timothy himself is an example of this preparation. Paul met him and called him into service in Acts chapter 16, probably A.D. 50 to 51, somewhere around there. But Paul had actually ministered in the city of Lystra, where Timothy was from, on his first journey in Acts 14, a couple years earlier. Now, he could have met him then, but he most definitely met his mother. He refers to his mother in uh in 2 Timothy, his mother and his grandmother that were believers in Jesus Christ. And yet they were also Jewish, so they had the scriptures and they had raised him in the instruction of the scriptures. So Timothy had this great background of being raised in the instruction of scriptures. The gospel comes to his town, and then it's not till a couple years later that Paul comes along and recognizes this guy as, as someone who needs to go with him on the road. So he takes him on the road. Now, Timothy had already developed 
a reputation with the brothers, it says in Acts chapter 16. The brothers in his town and a neighboring town testified, oh yeah, he's a good guy. He's a good believer and brother in Christ. So Paul takes him along. Timothy had to do some preparation. And that preparation we know was primarily the word of God. Because listen to what Paul says to him about this word of God in 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. He says this, um, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. So this is some years after he's been with Timothy. Timothy is now and only now pastor of a church. He didn't just become pastor of his hometown church when he believed. He traveled with Paul. He spent these years with Paul and, and doing Paul's errands and working alongside Paul. Now he's got his own place. He's got his own church. He's serving as a leader there. Paul's writing him letters. And he says, you, you know, you've got to hang on to what you've learned and remember from whom you've learned them. Well, he referred to his mother and his grandmother in the first chapter of this letter, and he's referring here also to himself. And he says, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So the scripture is there to make us wise to salvation. And then it says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's what the Word of God is for, and that's why the Word of God is our primary training material. It has to be, we have to be in a constant diet of the Word of God, constantly taking it in and learning it deeper and deeper, over and over again. Every time you go over it, you will learn more. And remember what Paul said earlier in chapter 2. He said, remember, it is God who works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. He put it in these men's hearts and they took up the cause and they sacrificed to do it. And how he does it is by the spiritual disciplines to be in the fellowship of believers studying, learning God's word, meeting with God in prayer, meeting with God in worship among his people, the fasting if that's necessary and when it's necessary, because sometimes it is, and serving him is a spiritual discipline. And all these things will make a well-rounded person. So hand in hand go the service, but also goes the training all the time, round the, round the clock throughout the year training and service together and together. And now I want to point out something. In this is joy. Look what it says again in Matthew 25, 23. We read it earlier. And I want you to take a close look at the end of this verse now. It says, His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. I've met many Christians, and I myself have experienced that sometimes I don't feel the joy that we're supposed to in Christ. But you know what cures that for me every time? It might be different for you, but here's what cures it for me every time. Serving Him. 
when I have the opportunity to teach or to preach or to just minister to someone's needs or just to talk someone through a difficulty and just to bring the scripture to bear, or teach them something new from the scripture, any of those kind of things, and your service might be different than mine, probably is different than mine. When I do that, that is joy. And that's what he's talking about in this verse. You enter into the joy of your master by doing what? By doing his work. What this faithful servant did when you read the parable is they did the will of their master while he was away. And Jesus teaches this parable as if we are the servant left behind and he is the master that has gone away, although he's right here with us all the time. But indeed, this is the case. We enter into joy doing his will. And it was this way with Christ too. Remember Jesus Christ said in John chapter 4, when the disciples went and got him food and he ministered to a woman at a well and she went into the city and told everyone about him and great multitudes started coming out and they ended up believing. They brought him food and you know they knew he was hungry and it said, it plainly said he was hungry at the beginning of the chapter. But he says, my food is to do the will him who sent me. And look what it says about joy, uh, the joy of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. After it gives all these great examples of faith and the works that prove their faith in chapter 11, the author of the book of Hebrews suggests that we should therefore move forward in serving him, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Boy, that's powerful because what that is saying is that it is joy that brought Jesus through that cross to the other side. The joy set before him. Folks, I know some of the tasks we have to do look like a cross to us. And some of the things we have to do in ministry and in running a church and everything else, sometimes we have to literally get our hands dirty. Sometimes we literally get into messes in people's lives and things like that. And it looks to us like a cross. But I want you to see the joy. Because when one of those people you're ministering to has that moment where the spirit enters them and the gleam comes in their eye and they're like, I get it. And through tears and praises, they repent of their sins and they trust in Jesus Christ as their savior. <laughs> it is worth it. It is worth the, the traverse of any number of miles. It is worth the scaling of any height. It is worth the crossing of any sea. And it is worth going to those we don't like that are right next door or to our family members that drive us crazy and continuing to serve and love them with gentleness and respect until such time as they might believe. It is worth it. This is the joy. And this is the invitation to you is to enter into this joy of the master. This is what God has for you. It's not drudgery. Now, remember it said that, you know, before the foundation of the world, that he had in mind for you good works for you to do. The end of those good works 
is the joy of the master. He's waiting there for you. So what do we do with what we've learned today? Well, first of all is this, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sins. And if you haven't done that for the first time, you need to get with a believer in Jesus Christ that you know. You can begin by contacting us and we'll help put you in touch with somebody. But don't go this alone. There's no such thing as a lone Christian. We are always thought of, always ministered to, always commanded in terms of the body of Christ, the church. Believe in Jesus Christ. Repent from your sins, which means turn from them. Decide you're not going to do them anymore. Agree with God that he's right about you, that he's right about your sinful nature. This is where we begin our Christ journey is to say, God, you're right about me. I am a sinner and I can't do it right. And I can't make my own salvation. I need Jesus Christ to do it for me. And then believe in Jesus Christ because he came and he ministered through a perfect and sinless life. And he took that perfect and sinless life and made a satisfactory offering upon the cross to God to pay the penalty for sins for all who believe. And then God raised him from the dead to prove that his life was worthy, to prove that Jesus has the power of life, that he's the one that can offer eternal life because he is indeed the author of life itself. He never deserved the death, but he took it willingly to pay the price for our sins. And because of that, he was raised and he is now seated, exalted above everything on earth and in heaven. He is at the right hand of the Father. And he will save you if you believe in him and show this belief by turning, repenting from your sins. And then my final encouragement is if you've already done that and you're certain of your position in Christ, serve right now, right where you are. And in just a moment, somebody's going to come to mind that you had contact with this week someone that you can personally find and have contact with again and that you can meet their needs and that you can bring them the truth of the gospel of Christ. You can connect them to others and you can bring them the truth or you can minister to their need to show the love of Christ. Only make sure they know it's the love of Christ that does it because without Christ, your service would be meaningless. So right now, serve where you are and serve indeed to the glory of God and to his credit because it is he that works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's end with a word of prayer. Father God, we praise you this day and we thank you for putting us together through this medium. And Lord, I pray that this was pleasing to you. I pray that you will use it in our hearts to further your agenda. Teach us, Lord, and lead us by your Spirit and by your Word. And may we be those who are found serving. May we be, we know that you're recording all things whatsoever have been done in heaven. And may we have a passage like Timothy or like Epaphroditus that speaks something of a faithful servant. And may we have a taste of that joy now 
Lord, I pray for all who hear who have decided to serve someone. I pray, Lord, that you will make it clear how they can serve, that you'll give them the faith to act and to do it. And Lord, I pray that you'll give them the joy of service, that you'll give them this joy of the master of doing his will. May your will become as food to us like it was to Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our time together, and I want to encourage you to uh, contact us if you have any questions or comments. You can find us at whitesrun.org, where you can learn more about us, our location, our service times, uh, many other sermons. You can find all the other sermons on there. You can find notes for this sermon if you're interested in the cross-references. And you can email us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com, where your email will be personally answered by me. And I won't put you on any kind of mailing list, and I won't annoy you for fundraising or anything like that. It will strictly be for our communication, uh, for you to communicate uh, to us with a question or comment or concern, and we'll communicate back. And and, uh, if you like, that'll be the end of it. But I encourage you, please contact us and uh, look to us. We can help you, encourage you with God's Word.